0: Welcome to Redemption's podcast. This is Corey Ball, lead pastor at Redemption Community Church, found in Kirkwood, Missouri, in the greater St. Louis area. Before we dive into the content, I want to invite you to follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook to stay current on all things redemption. You'll find both of these accounts by searching Redemption STL. But more than anything, we hope that this podcast will help inspire and challenge you to take your next steps in following Jesus. If you have any questions about God, Christianity, or redemption, don't hesitate to reach out. You can DM us on our socials or text us at 314-391-4141. And now, without further ado, here is the content you are looking for. Enjoy.
1: Tonight, our uh, scripture reading comes from Luke 6, and it's verses 6 through 11, and it says this, on another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath, but Jesus knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of me. Uh, Come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward. Then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them one by one, and then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him.
0: Uh, Welcome again to Redemption, glad you guys are here. Um, Hey, I don't know if you did this, but this morning I woke up and it was like six in the morning and I was like, whoa. For not setting an alarm, this is pretty early for me to wake up, and I was like, "Why? Why am I waking up so early?" And it turns out it's daylight savings time, so it's really cool that it's like pitch black outside at five o'clock. Um, and so, if you're uh, if you're with me on that seasonal depression type thing, uh, you know I, I'm with you. It's awful, right? But uh, so, thanks for coming on the first day that it's uh, dark when you come to church, um, which is just crazy. But uh, anyway, thanks again for coming here tonight. Uh, when I was in school, I think it was like in middle school, uh, the the movie. Big Daddy came out. Uh, it's, uh, it's an Adam Sandler movie, and the plot of the movie is this boy named Julian, who then later wants to be called Frankenstein, which is really funny. Um, he, ends up, uh, he ends up being dropped off by essentially this like random person, um, and he's supposed to be given to Jon Stewart's character, but uh, Jon Stewart is on a trip. He's across seas, and so instead, uh, Adam Sandler um, takes care of him, and he's taking care of this little kid, Frankenstein or Julian, right? Um, and what, what, what you soon realize is that Adam Sandler is not fit to be a father just yet, okay? And so, uh, you know, if you're confused by that, uh, you know, it's fine, just watch it, it's on Netflix. By the way, I think it's an underrated movie, it's pretty funny, um, it's a good movie. So it's uh, it's on Netflix right now, you can go watch it, okay? But uh, th- this, is, this is what I wanna point out though in the movie, you'll see in this first clip here, uh, often what happens with this is, or th- not this first clip, but this first photo, Often what happens with this is that Julian, or Frankenstein, he, he does things throughout the movie that aren't, like, bad or dangerous, per se, but they're just unguided, okay? Now, he does, at one point, he takes this really big stick, and he throws it in front of a rollerblader in a Central Park in New York City, and the guy falls, like, that was dangerous, it was bad, okay? It's also really funny, but um, bad, okay? But, uh, but, but, but mostly, it's just things that he does that are unguided, like this, he's pouring cereal by himself, and before you know it, obviously, what happens, he makes a mess, and you know, the the milk's on the floor, and the funniest thing, spoiler alert, um, you know, if you haven't seen the movie yet, that's on you, not me. Um, So right after this, Adam Sandler just comes up with newspapers and just covers up the milk with newspapers, which is hilarious, okay? Uh, Again, he doesn't know what he's doing as as a guardian of a child, all right? So um, this movie makes me think, though, about something that's happening kind of in the world today, specifically in the church, and it's not bad, per se, but it is unguided, And, and that one thing, I think, that is unguided is is wrapped up in this word deconstruction so deconstruction wikipedia would say this that deconstruction or faith deconstruction is a phenomenon with within american evangelicalism in which christians rethink their faith in jettison previously held beliefs sometimes to the point of no longer identifying as christians it is closely related to the to the evangelical movement. So to dumb it down for us, essentially what deconstruction is, um, it is like spring cleaning. It's as if they took everything that is, is involved in their faith, they laid it out on a table and they said, okay, what stays and what goes? Now, um, what stays and what goes, the filter by which they decide this is uh, solely based on who they believe God to be, okay? what their belief of God is, who they believe God to be. It's a very unguided thing these days. Uh, Gen Zs, that's 25 and under, and then millennials, 26 to 42, 43, depending on where you look there. Um, those generations have been deconstructing, right? And we see this. I don't know if you've like, you know, seen this on social media or talked to friends who have gone through this. Um, And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'll tell you why in a second, but it is unguided. See, previously we would have, um, you know, church mothers and fathers. We would have those who are mature of the faith. We would have uh, adults, men and women, husbands and wives, grandfathers and grandmothers sitting down with a questioning generation. And and really, you know, doctrine by doctrine, kind of going through these things with these people, with a pastor on speed dial. Uh, But instead, these days, that's not necessarily... Necessarily happening. Why is it not happening? Well, I'll give you a couple reasons that I think are pretty obvious. Number one, we lead busy lives. Like, you're busy, I'm busy, we lead busy lives, and the truth is that discipleship takes time. It just does. For you to sit down with someone and go through um, the doctrines of faith, it takes time. Number two, uh, individualism. We worship individualism, like you are an individual, Right? You are an individual. We say things like, you do you, you live your truth, right? Individualism, we, we uplift that um, to our detriment often. Number three, uh, the spiritually mature are no longer on the same spectrum as they once were. So check this out, okay? If spiritual maturity is a, is a spectrum, and let's just say, like, we know it's a spectrum, right? If you're less spiritually mature, you're on this side. If you're more spiritually mature, you're on that side. The spiritually mature 20 years ago might have been over here, but today... They're here. And the thing is, about spiritual maturity, I was talking about this in a Bible study on Friday. I was saying, we were looking at kind of the words of Jesus versus how we look at spiritual maturity. See, we look at spiritual maturity as it being a spectrum. Jesus didn't really use those words or that language. More so what he said was, you are my disciple if you blank. That was it. It was either like you're in or you're out. I mean, he actually used very exclusive language. Either you follow me or you don't. He didn't say you're more like me if you are, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, he said, you know, for example, in John 8, 31, he said, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, uh, if you are my disciple, you will abide in my word. And so the antithesis that we would say is if you're, you know, not abiding in his word, the question we have to ask ourselves is are we are we his disciple? So the the spiritual maturity kind of changes, right? It's like a bell curve, and we would say today, like, people that are here, oh, like, they're spiritually mature, because why? Because they're more spiritually mature than those down here. Um, But are they still spiritually mature? You know, I don't know. It's kind of changed, right? Uh, The fourth thing, the Internet exists. (laughs) My dad, a couple uh, Thanksgivings ago, he said, I mean, it was a good, honest moment, but he said, I'm so disappointed that you don't call me to like change out an outlet in the house or like how to change your oil or how to like, you know, I don't know, you know, like like those basic things. And I was like, dad, like YouTube exists, you know, like it's one of those things that's so quick to look it up on YouTube. And so the reality is it's it's easy for us to take our questions to the Internet. The fifth thing is that fewer people are really involved in Christian community. And so church attendance these days are 1.4 times a month. I don't know if you know that, but that's the average. So if you come more than 1.4 times, like good for you. You're you're coming more than the average person. Um, So 1.4 times. And so less people are involved in community groups across churches, um, less people are uh, involved in serving and things like that. And so there's, there's not as much connection there. The sixth thing is this. It's a, there's this, there's this book, it's called, um, it's called A Secular Age, it's by Charles Taylor, and he talks about this change that as a culture we've gone through. That as a culture, in almost every area, we've gone through a change that has taken us from authority to authenticity. See, it used to be that as, uh, as people, just generally, we would figure out what are our authorities in life. Uh, whether it be the government, our, our you know, religious leaders, our, uh, you know, like sacred writings, our, you know, religion as a whole, our parents, whatever it is, police officers, okay? Like, what are the authorities in our lives? Now, let's follow those authorities. Like, let's, even if it's a struggle, let's, let's follow those authorities. But now, instead, we've, we've pushed authority to the wayside, and all we pursue is authenticity, it's a really interesting thing, and it's true in the church, too, I think. Uh, authority never really defines us anymore. Now, what defines us is a, is a search for authenticity. And in some ways, it sounds good because we want the authentic Jesus. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about this idea of reinventing Jesus and how our culture often reinvents Jesus. We don't want to reinvent Jesus. We want the authentic Jesus. And that sounds really good, the switch from, from authority to authenticity, until you realize that who defines, or, the, or you answer the question, who defines authentic? Who defines what authenticity or authentic is? The reality is that every individual then defines what authentic is for themselves, and that becomes a problem because if I ask you to define authentic, and then I define authentic, and if I define it as something that is uh, that is true, right? Something that is that is true, and you define it as something that makes you feel good. All of a sudden, we're, we're dealing with different, different you know, dictionaries here. And uh, same word, different dictionaries. Same word, different definitions. Bad, right? So um, Blaise Pascal, he says this, the 17th century philosopher, he says this. He says, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. It's not on the basis of proof. It's not a question of, is this true? But it's a question of, does this fit into my decided way of life? Does this fit into my decided way of thinking? Does this make me happier based off of my pursuit and my own defined happiness? Not what is true or is this true? And because of those reasons, we are like Frankensteins. We are like Julians from... Big Daddy, and 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 we're in this like area of unguided deconstruction as a culture. Well, I think it's normal, by the way, uh, deconstruction. I think that uh, any any healthy Christian has gone through a time of deconstruction. Uh, I'll tell you how normal it was uh, for me. My freshman year in college, I was going to be a pastor, and I entered into this time of deconstruction uh, for me, for for my faith. Deconstruction is not bad. Again, like I said, it's not bad, but if it's unguided, it can end up in, in into some you know really scary places. It's okay to deconstruct as long as you're reconstructing. Um, in fact, I would say it's very healthy for you to sit back and go, "Okay, what have I been taught about Jesus?" And not based off of what my parents have said or what my grandparents have said, or or you know based off of the culture of the time, but based off of the reading of Scripture alone. And, um, you know, maybe some guidance from those from the early centuries, right? Church fathers and mothers, you know, things like that. Um, So based off of, you know, 2,000 years of Christian orthodoxy, um, what is true? It's okay for you to throw out the things that are clearly not true and to cling to the things that are. The difference was for me, when I was deconstructing and reconstructing, I was surrounded uh, by Professors, biblical professors. I was surrounded by uh, students who were also in Bible, you know, Bible school. We were challenging each other on these things, and um, I was plugged into a church from week two of being in college. So I was in a community group. I was serving in the youth ministry from just a couple of weeks of being in college. So my deconstruction was not unguided, but we have an entire generation often today that their deconstruction is unguided and so it's rarely going in a good direction because we get to define authentic and true and the question is what is authentic and what is true even uh Pontius Pilate in the story of Jesus he asked the question very clearly he says this what is truth which is amazing like we think this this question of what is true is new today but it's not new like, this is a question that was asked in the trial of Jesus' death. What is truth? And so, as, uh, as we look at this, um, this deconstruction, we're uh, kind of looking at this reinvention of Jesus. And we're answering this question, what is the true Jesus? See, as a freshman in college, I wasn't looking to follow less of Jesus. And I wasn't looking to follow a more palatable Jesus I wasn't looking to follow a Jesus that wasn't true in the pages of Scripture. But I was looking to find out what about Jesus that I've been taught is true from the pages of Scripture. And what do I still need to learn about Jesus? I think this this quote from C.S. Lewis captures what I'm talking about. C.S. Lewis says, I do not want my image of God. I want God. I don't want my image of God. I want God. So the question, church, is do we want our image of God or do we want God? And that's what this series is about, looking at the real God. Deconstruction often leads uh, not to the truth of God but to the reinvention of God. And uh, there may not be anything that's more foolish than this self-given permission to reinvent God. And when we do this, when we reinvent God, which, by the way, very crazy that we do this, all we're left with is um, this false sense of um, comfortability uh, with a God that doesn't exist because we, we reinvented him. Um, we're left with a false sense of false assurance of salvation. And, uh, and then uh, beyond that, we're kind of left with this disconnect from the most powerful uncreated being in the world, God, we we actually are disconnected then from God because we recreated and we 're not living to 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 find the God, right? to find God. So I think that what we need to do is we need to look at the the historical Christ in the Christ found through the pages of scripture. and at the at the cross of that, We find the authentic Jesus, and that's what we're trying to do in this series. Today, uh, in our second week, we're going to be looking at a bobblehead Jesus, and uh, I bought this guy on Amazon. I love this. So bobblehead Jesus even comes with like the 3M sticky there. You can put it on your dash if you'd like, and as you drive, he can do this, right? Um, And so bobblehead Jesus, that's what we're looking at today. We love a bobblehead Jesus, right? Uh, The idea of bobblehead Jesus or any bobblehead figure is that Whatever the figure is, uh, it's a representation of a character, and that character is constantly in this, like, head-shaking yes, right? Like, look at this. I mean, it's, like, always, bob, you know, bobbing, right? Like, yes, yes, okay? And, uh, and so, if, if you went to a cards game, then you've got, you know, a, a Wainwright or a Yachty or a Puholse, um bobblehead, right? And so, if you have one of those, then you have an always agreeing, always saying yes, Waino, Pujols, or, or Yachty bobblehead figure, See, with Jesus, when we go to Jesus, He's always saying yes to us. And so the question that we ask is Jesus, can I take this job that is not in my calling? And Jesus is like, yes. Of course, like, of course you can. Jesus, can I get drunk this weekend? Yeah, absolutely. Of course you can get drunk, whatever you want to do. Jesus, can I buy this car that's like out or this house that's like out of my budget and then like stop giving to church and stop like budgeting my money the way I should? Yeah, of course, like absolutely. Why would you not be able to do that? Yes, right? Yes, okay, yes, you can. Jesus, can I have sex with this person who's not, you know, my spouse? Yes, 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 of course. Jesus, can I I take that $20,000 vacation that I know I can't afford? Like, absolutely, you know you can. Like, why are you asking me? Like I'm the bobblehead Jesus. And, and a bobblehead Jesus is worse, by the way, than a magic eight ball Jesus. Magic eight ball Jesus, at least we get, we get a no sometimes. <laughs> we get a, you know, not always or, or, or maybe or like come back again for another answer. But when we go to bobblehead Jesus, when we reinvent Jesus to always agree with us, then we have a Jesus that never disagrees. We have a Jesus that always says yes to whatever you ask of him. And that's not Jesus, that's a genie. And so uh, today we're going to be looking at this. And by the way, um, Bobblehead Jesus is different than Chocolate Jesus. See, last week we talked about Chocolate Jesus. I apologize if you weren't here. Uh, we did not record it. There was a technical difficulty. Um, Chocolate Jesus is this idea that, that, that Jesus exists to, to satisfy you, to always keep you satisfied and happy. That's what chocolate Jesus is. Chocolate Jesus um, is more about comfortability. It's about your comfortability. That God would never do anything to ask you, uh, you know, to be uncomfortable or to step out of your familiar or to step out of your comfort zone. Um, but a bobblehead Jesus is different. It's more philosophical. It's no matter what you ask of Jesus, he says yes. So today uh, we're going to be looking at this group of people that um, were legalistic. Today we're going to be talking about legalism. And this idea that sometimes a bobblehead Jesus isn't only a permissive Jesus, uh, this reinvention of Jesus, um, but sometimes a bobblehead Jesus is a Jesus that that even adds to God's standards. And whatever that standard is that you want to add to God's standards, he says yes to. Today we're going to be looking at this group of of people, these Pharisees, and, and I think what we're going to find out is that whether we are adding to the standard of God or whether we are taking away from the standard of God, if we are looking to Jesus to always be a bobblehead, to always say yes, to always have a head shaking yes, that that Jesus is not Jesus, but he's a genie. All right, so open up your Bibles. We're going to go to the book of Luke. Uh, We already read some of this, but Luke chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 6 again. Let's, Let's pick the verses that we already read. Let's kind of pull them apart here on another sabbath day a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while jesus was teaching the teachers of religious law and the pharisees watched jesus closely if he healed the man's hand they planned to accuse him of working on the sabbath okay super interesting here because it seems like healing a man is a good thing like if uh if you guys could heal somebody and it was on a sunday i'd be like please do and can you come to church and do it right like like, we have some people that, that need healing. In fact, we have people in this church that need healing. We have people in this church that are going through it. And so I would say, please, come, come to church, and can you heal these people? Well, that's not what the Pharisees were, were getting at. They were actually kind of uh, upset about this. And as you saw, you know, in the, in the scripture that we already read, they were wild with rage. And so um, why are they so upset about this work on the Sabbath? It has to come from somewhere. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, we're getting the Ten Commandments here. And it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is God. He says this. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. So, see, the Sabbath is created uh, not for the creator, but for the creation. It's for us. See, God doesn't tire, but we do. And so it's not a punitive thing, but it's a protective thing. It protects our souls. It protects our bodies. It gives us this time to rest and Relax. It's this. It's the spiritual and physical R and R, if you will, um, and uh, that's why I love. Like when I see people on vacation uh, today, Jaden. By the way, he's Jaden Barr. The bars are on vacation. I like message him. I was like, "Good for you, man. Like enjoy every bit of it. Like it's good for us to rest. And so uh, God created us to do this, but He didn't create us to do it just once every four months for a week. He created us to do it every single Sunday. Like, isn't God cool? That's awesome. Like he literally gave us not just permission, but a commandment to rest, to chill for one whole day, uh, once a week. And, uh, and we would be so much better if we actually did that. Um, and, and really what it is, is it's, it teaches us to budget our time. Uh, this past week, I was meeting with a couple. We were talking about just budgets and marriage and stuff like that. And I said, one of the best things you can do is you can budget your time. Because the reality is when we budget something, we make more of the thing that we have rather than spending it on things that we don't have. So uh, essentially it it means this, that if we count our time, we make our our time count. And so if you count your time, if you budget your time, you say, hey, on Sunday, I can't do anything. I just got to relax because God commanded this. So that means that, you know, Thursday, Friday, you work pretty hard, you get your stuff done, right? Uh, because you know that Sunday you're going to Sabbath. And I love this, the, the Deal family, they've been Sabbathing on Sundays. And, um, and from, from what I hear, it's been an incredible thing for their family. I've tried to contact James several times on Sundays, <laughs> tried to like text him or call him. And I'm like, what is going on? He's not answering his phone. And I'm like, oh yeah, he's Sabbathing, right? It's so cool. And so we need to do this more often. God teaches us to do this. The problem though is the Sabbath is good for us, right? It's not punitive for us, it's protective for us, but the issue is when it's then weaponized. Yeah, and so the the Pharisees, this group of people that we're talking about here, these legalist people, they, they take something that God never said, God never said that healing is work, and if you heal somebody on the Sabbath, that you're in trouble. He never said this. Like the Sabbath is a good thing, created for good things, but the Pharisees take this and they go, yeah, but healing is work, right? You see what they're doing? It's subtle, but they're adding, they're adding to what God said about the Sabbath And, uh, and they're weaponizing it. So this is the problem. Okay, so let's continue. Verse eight, but Jesus knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Love this. Because when God wants to do a miracle, like rarely does he do it privately. Um, like other people get to see these things. And so they were on the front row. And by the way, I would say that they're blessed to see this miracle, but instead they're not blessed. They're just ticked off, right? So the man uh, came forward. Then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? So first of all, let me say this. Jesus had critics and you should too. You should. If you live your entire life without critics, I think the question you have to ask yourself is, do I look like Jesus? There were people that hated Jesus. And I know we can say, yeah, but he was Jesus and we're not. Yeah, but are you better? Are we better than our Savior? Jesus is really clear that the world will hate you and it will hate you because it first hated me. You should have critics. Now, here's the difference. I have critics, okay? Okay. But my prayer is that the things that they're critiquing within me is the image of God in me and not the sin of me in me, <laughs> right? I hope that they're critiquing that they see Jesus in me and they don't like it because it rubs against them rather than the sin of me in me. I don't want them to see that and, and, and be, up. you know, like they should be upset if they see that. I don't want them to critique that because I don't want that to be present um, so what, what are people critiquing in you? Is it Jesus in you or is it you in you? The second thing here is that Jesus, he starts questioning um, these uh, Pharisees and he asks them, you know, these questions of like, what is the Sabbath for? Guys, what is the Sabbath for? And, um, and they know the law, like they can interpret it forward and backwards. They're the ones, they're the theological gatekeepers for the Jewish people. And so when Jesus starts asking them about the, the, um, the, the, the Sabbath, like they are the authority. They should know. But they're legalistic. And legalism, if you don't know, uh, is defined this way. There's kind of two different definitions. We're talking about them both. But the main one I want to use is this. It's the false belief that our standing with God is based on us keeping the law, a.k.a. doing the right things according to God and not the wrong things. The other thing that legalism is, is, is. It's adding to the law, but I, I think we don't struggle with that very much. I don't think you struggle with that. I don't think that you add to the law. I think that you're taken away from the law. I think more than anything, you're going, you know what? Uh, I need a more palatable Jesus. I need a bobblehead Jesus, who's always agreeing with me. Um, I, I need a bobblehead Jesus. I'm going to take away. I'm going to make it more palatable. I need kind of less of Jesus, and still The question that we come up with, it stirs in our soul. Like that the thing that is just like causes a spiritual angst is this deep internal belief that we still are not loved by God. That we uh, still um, our standing with God is based off of us being able to keep a law that we've already lessened. We've already made it less than what it really is in scripture. And we're like, God can never love me. He can never love me because I'm not good enough. That's legalism. Uh, the Jews, they, they have this uh, thing where, you know, it, it comes it's us too, but the, uh, this um, uh, commandment of, of do not covet your neighbor's wife, of course. But you know that the Jews, I don't know if you know this, but like Hasidic Jews, the women, they, they have um, uh, wigs on. And the reason they do this is because they believe that the one thing that is like the most like easily coveted uh, of a woman is her hair. And so, they went to the um, they went to uh, the rabbis, and they said, "Okay, but rabbis, um, what if what if we didn't have our hair on? What if we had other people's hair? They wouldn't be coveting us; they'd be coveting somebody else that doesn't exist, whatever." And the rabbis were like, "Yeah, totally." And over time, this trend became a thing that now all Hasidic women wear wigs, and now they're judged on if they have those wigs on or not legalism entered baptists i grew up baptist and one thing that i remember from like from a kid like if you drink you're going to hell so just just know that okay if you drink you're going to hell welcome to st louis welcome to budweiser town if you have a beer flames okay and and so I grew up like hearing this and knowing this and feeling this and believing this and I was like yeah drinkers hell right and um, by the way you can't just enjoy a beer you're either an alcoholic or not um, that's just how you know like they made it seem and the whole time I'm, I'm growing up like in the you know the 90s and, and 80s and 90s going like I just don't see this in scripture. Like, we make it a really big deal in, in church, but like, it's not a big, in fact, Jesus, interesting, can we talk about the first miracle that he did? It doesn't make sense to me, right? Legalism, okay, he turns water into wine, and they're like, oh, no, let's, let's not talk about that one. Um, you know, and the, 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 the 1990s, last one here, but Christianity in the 1990s, it was a big deal to have this guy right here on stage. Like, huge deal, I mean, if these, these puppies right here, if they're on stage, you're done, right? Like that whole entire church is going to hell. And so anyway, legalism. Like where does it say that you can't have a drum set? on stage or use it in fact over and over and over again. Scripture talks about clanging and clashing symbols being used to praise God. It doesn't make any sense. I had a conversation, one more. I had a conversation this past week with a friend who's a church planter and he said, you know, there's this guy in my church, he's really riled up because um, we, we actually might bring like haze, like fog onto the stage and and I was like, okay. And, and you know, I don't care either way. I don't care about fog. I don't care if it's there. I don't care if it's not there. But I do believe this. I think if that's something that's going to cause you to leave a church, you have serious Problems, and the reason is this: that when you look at Revelation chapter seven, the throne room of God is full of smoke and lights. It's like a U2 concert. It's crazy, right? Like it's it's like a Coldplay concert, but Jesus is there. And so, anyway, like if there's haze or there's not haze, it, it doesn't matter. But we become so legalistic about these things, we freak out about them. The issue here is this: that you cannot keep the law. You cannot keep the law. This is so clear in Scripture. You are not good enough. You will never be good enough. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be good enough on your own. You, er, sorry, if you would be good enough on your own, you wouldn't need a Savior. Jesus would be obsolete. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb would be utterly pointless. But that's not reality. Reality is that Jesus' death on the cross was purposeful. His resurrection from the tomb was intentionally designed with you and me in mind. You can never do all the right things, and you can never keep from doing all the wrong things. We are human, and therefore, we are just not perfect. And because of that, we need a perfect God that perfectly went to the cross on our behalf. That's the gospel. But the antithesis of the gospel is legalism. The antithesis of the gospel, again, is this idea that your good standing is completely hinging upon you keeping the law. That's not the gospel. That's not the story of Jesus. He knew you were going to screw up royally, and he loves you anyway, and he went to the cross anyway. The Pharisees, they dwell on the law over dwelling with God. They weren't concerned about dwelling with God. He was right in front of them. They weren't concerned about that. They were just concerned about the law. They created in their mind an even stricter law, and if other people didn't hold to it, then, uh, then they came down on them as if they were God. See, in effect, what they were doing is they were taking the place of Jesus because they created this bobblehead Jesus that would only agree with them. And here lies the problem that they were adding to the law. When we create a bobblehead Jesus... We create a God that doesn't disagree with us. We create a God that shakes his head, yes, always. And in our creation of this bobblehead Jesus, we may be adding to the standard of God or taking away from the standard of God. Either way, in our reinvention of Jesus, he always agrees with us. He always says yes. And in the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus would only say yes to them. And as you will see, next, If Jesus did not shake his head yes to everything they believed about him to be true, then he must not be God. Verse 10, he looked around at them one by one and then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man, he held out his hand and it was restored. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and they began to discuss what to do with him next. And by the way, they didn't wanna promote him. They didn't want to make him their, their rabbi. They didn't want to make him their pastor. They didn't want to follow him. They didn't want to make him the authority. Instead, they looked for opportunities to kill him. They were wild with rage because this man who is claiming to be God was not agreeing with them. And so the question, that, or the, the, the problem that they had to answer, um, the answer was not, maybe we're not holy. <laughs> maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're human. That's, that, that, that wasn't their conclusion. The conclusion was he must not be God. Because he doesn't agree with me. Over 2,000 years, and we're doing the same thing. Let me ask you this question. What comes to your mind when you think about God? A.W. Tozer, he was a theologian, um, and he wrote this book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's one of the most powerful books I've ever read. It's short, small, um, and I think you should buy it. I think you should, you, you should read it. Um, it's older, so it's going to take you a little bit to kind of pour through in some ways. Um, but this is the opening page. I'm just going to read the opening page because I think it's so pertinent to, to this series. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to read that line again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains highs or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. What's the biggest question before the church? It's God. And the most portentous fact or important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend uh, by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God This is true, not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Not our education, not our careers, not our sexuality, not our marriage or our family. What's interesting is that our culture would say that those four things our education, careers, our sexuality, and our family, that those four things are the most important thing about you. But they're not. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. In this reinvention of Jesus, uh, the Pharisees, they felt more control over their eternal futures and in that way over God himself. Second quote by Blaise Pascal as we wrap up. He says this, and then later on, Mark Twain basically rewrote his quote. But he says, God created people in his image on the sixth day. And every day since, people have returned the favor. We have returned the favor. We've, we've continued to reinvent God into our image. See, if, if we can create or reinvent God into a bobblehead Jesus, then this Jesus Uh, he's okay with us living outside of our calling. He's okay with us spending our time in our finances, however we'd like, without any input from him. He's okay with us sleeping with whomever we want. He's okay with our sexuality to look like whatever we want it to look like. And he's okay with us not doing one-tenth of what he's actually called us to do. He's fine with that. Bobblehead Jesus is fine with that because he's a genie that lives in our pocket. But the real Jesus Is on a different field, a different plane completely. We have a bobblehead Jesus. Listen to this. We have a bobblehead Jesus because a bobblehead Jesus can be contained. It can be manipulated. It can be controlled. And it will always say yes to us. We reinvent Jesus into this because at the end of the day, when the day winds down and things quiet down inside of our soul, the kids stop whining. Uh, You know, once the phone stops ringing, the laptop is shut, the TV is turned off. When we are actually afraid at that moment, we are actually afraid in a real God who really exists and has real standards, standards that we don't meet. We are afraid that the God from the pages of scripture won't be happy with the dark parts of our hearts. And we will fall short of his standards. So in turn, we just create our own standards. And we might even take pills or drink in order to try to forget that we don't have the power to reinvent the only being that spoke this world into existence. We have an opportunity to either submit to God or to reinvent God, to recreate God. As we talked about last week, sometimes it's a chocolate Jesus this week It's a bobblehead Jesus next week. It's a G.I. Joe Jesus in the fourth week. It's a gas station trip Jesus. I know that's all very confusing. You'll find out once we get there. But we can't live up to God's standards. You can't. That's That's like the story of the Bible. They didn't do it in the garden. Abraham didn't do it. Isaac didn't do it. Jacob didn't do it. Your grandma and grandpa didn't do it. You're not going to do it either. And so we end up twisting these standards to make them more palatable and easy. May I encourage us to not do this? Because we don't have to. If the people who create a bobblehead Jesus just knew the grace and love and forgiveness of Jesus, if they saw Jesus the way that a good father sees a child, and when they screw up and they don't listen and they fall, and they're hurt again and they're, and they're just wallowing in their own issues and problems. That father is never condemning and hateful and angry. And I've come back to this time and time again, but Exodus 34, Jesus finally, or God finally, he describes himself and he says, I'm compassionate, I'm merciful, I'm long suffering. I forgive sin and iniquity from generation to generation to generation. He goes on and on and on about his forgiveness, his kindness, his mercy, his compassion. And then he ends by saying this, but surely I will not let the guilty go unpunished. But Jesus went to the cross so that you are no longer guilty. If you believe in him, if you follow him, you're not guilty because his blood covers over you. And so the punishment is void. And so as a Christian, when we get to read those words, we get to rest in the promises that he's merciful and kind and compassionate and loving and forgiving to generations, and if you're having a problem believing this, hear this, that his standards are not to show us how bad we are, but how good he is. His holiness exists to show us an unattainable standard, but it exists to reveal to us a fully sufficient and competent savior who loves us deeply and who saves you. He saves you. Um, we're going to put this on our social media. This is really the last thing I'm saying here. We're going to put this on our social media, but I want you to listen to this on your own time, maybe in your car ride alone, uh, where you can cry without anybody around you. Uh, maybe it's uh, when the family goes away. If you're a stay-at-home mom, like, you know, the kids are down sleeping and, and you know, your husband's at work. He's already listened to the song while he drove to work. Um, it was some time that you have alone. Um, if you need to go on a drive tonight, just do that. But... There's a song called As You Find Me by Hillsong. And the point of it is this, that wherever you are in life, that's where God finds you. As you find me, as you find my heart. And this is, this is what the lyrics of the song says. I've been strong and I've been broken within a moment. Do you feel that? That you've been strong, like you've had moments of strength, but you've been broken like that. I've been faithful and I've been reckless at every bend. So poetic. I've held everything together and I've watched it shatter. I've stood tall and I have crumbled in the same breath. I have wrestled and I have trembled toward surrender. This is our hearts. Chased my heart adrift. This is so poetic. Chased my heart adrift and then drifted home again. Plundered blessing. Man, we've done that. Plundered blessing until I've been desperate to find redemption. Think of the the prodigal son. Plundered blessing until I've been desperate to find redemption. And every time I turn around, Lord, you're still there. I was found before I was lost. I was yours before I was not. Grace to spare for all my mistakes. And that part just wrecks me. I know I don't deserve this kind of love, but somehow this kind of love is who you are. It's a grace I could never add up to be somebody you still want, but somehow you love me as you find me. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love that in all of our brokenness, The sad thing is that in our broken moments, we think that the safest thing is to reinvent you, to to create a bobblehead Jesus, to to twist your standards into something that we think we can fit into and still, at the end of the day, God, it's not well in our soul. It's not well within us. God, we don't have to reinvent you. We don't have to recreate you in you know, a bobblehead. Jesus, Lord, you love us as you find us. and Your love is so good, it doesn't even leave us there. But It transforms us, it changes us. So God, I pray that you would change us. I pray that as, uh, as you find us, God, I pray that you would... I pray that we wouldn't be tempted to reinvent you, but I pray that you would recreate us every single day. As you've created us, God, I pray that you would recreate us. And, you would continue to change us and mold, change us and mold us into um, the followers that you want us to be. So, um, Lord, my, my thought, my hope, my prayer, my, my longing, my begging of you is that you would speak to our hearts and that you would give us faith that you love us as you find us. And that we don't have to clean ourselves up before we come to you. We don't have to reinvent you for you to accept us. And, um, And that's the greatest thing about you. Um, It's all these things I ask and pray in the name of your son, Jesus.